Epigenetics Podcast Episode 14. Welcome to the 14th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast of Active Motif. My name is Stefan and I am part of the technical support and marketing team. Our special guest for this episode is Lucy Steed from the University of Leeds. And I'm happy to talk to you now, Lucy. Thank you, Lucy, for joining me today. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Um, please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Um, you studied at the University of Cambridge and the University of Leeds. And from 2007 to 2010, you did a PhD in bioinformatics at the University of Leeds. You then moved on to the Leeds Institute of Molecular Medicine, where you did your postdoc. And since 2016, you are now at the Leeds Institute of Medical Research at St. James. Um, a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place? And then after your interest in biology was erased, how uh, yeah, did you get interested in pursuing a career in science? I suppose my, my passion, my interest for biology really blossomed when I was at university. Um, I did a natural sciences degree, which meant that there was some options that I could take. And it really allowed me to explore a bit more specifically into human and cell biology, which I think is, is really kind of where my passion lies. Um, I must say, though, that actually after university, I left science and academia altogether and went to work in retail marketing for three years. Um, And this was actually because while I was at university, although I, I really loved biology and I, and I did find my passion for it, um, I wasn't very good at experimental biology. So I could um, plan an experiment and I could work out exactly what was needed to do to, to answer a biological question. But I was very much all fingers and thumbs when it came to, to the lab work. My husband jokes now because I'm not very good at cooking. So he says, well, of course, if you can't follow a recipe, you probably couldn't follow a protocol. Um so basically, I, I left biology thinking I couldn't be a biologist without doing experimental science. And in my three years working in a completely different field, I think what it really taught me is just how much I loved it and how much I missed it. And uh, I wanted that intellectual challenge back again. So I re-entered academia, having realized that I could actually retrain as a computational biologist uh, and really kind of get the best of both worlds where I could be immersed back in biological sciences, um, but without having the risk of breaking another pipette. Yeah. So for me, it's exactly the other way around. Um, I say if I can do a PCR following that recipe, I must be able to do decent cooking. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that's exactly the other way around. And I guess this also answers my second question of why did you, why you chose um, the bioinformatics over the classical wet lab um, studies, right? So you were not really interested or able to to yeah interested in doing wet lab work but now with the bioinformatics and and the, like planning the experiments that's like more what you want or can do yeah absolutely and I think also I mean when I went into my degree in natural sciences I kind of had a more focus at that point about the physical sciences and mathematics so I think I do kind of I suppose my forte does lie a little bit in that kind of more data analysis side of things but as I say my kind of passion and interest is in biology so I suppose this is just a perfect merging of those two disciplines to hopefully give me a little bit of a niche so is it more the analytical th side of things that is um, interesting you? Um, 
Well, I would say it is the mechanisms, but I think I'm more interested in, or at least I, I kind of, I suppose, came from a place of being more interested in exactly what is happening in the patient tissues. So um, I, I kind of wanted to take data from actual patient molecular profiling. And of course, at that point, it has all, you know, become, you know, for example, sequencing data. Um, and my kind of, I suppose, training was in, in how to make more biological and clinically relevant inferences from those large data sets. All right. So coming more to your work, um, in your work, you focus more on glioblastoma. Um, could you give us a little insight and background to this disease? Yeah, so um, glioblastoma is the most common and most deadly form of brain cancer in, in adults, at least. You do, you do have a pediatric form, but we focus on the, on adult GBM. Um Basically, patients receive a diagnosis. There is a standardized treatment, but within six to nine months, these tumors inevitably recur. Um, so it's an incurable cancer. It's inevitably fatal. Um, so it, I mean, it doesn't just kill, it, it kills quickly. So really, it's very much in desperate need of finding better treatments, more effective treatments. Um, and historically, it hasn't actually received a great deal of funding because thankfully, it's quite a, a, a rare disease still. Um, But I suppose maybe part of the 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 draw for me was kind of this challenge of um, having not really had it improve in terms of prognostic, you know, survival benefit for for about twenty years now. Is this the the death rate uh, or the the small yeah life expectancy that you get after uh, yeah yes. after you uh, detected it? Is it is it due to because you can't really detect it really early on, or is it because you can't really treat it? It's because you can't really treat it. So in fact, even in cases where they have detected glioblastoma almost by, by accident, you know, before patients have become symptomatic, um, the, the standardized treatment is is really just cut out as much as you possibly can, and then patients receive uh, radiotherapy and chemotherapy. But of course, a tumor in the brain. I mean, it's if you have a tumor in your lung, the, the surgeons can go in and they can remove a whole, you know, they can move a whole lung and the patient can still survive. But when it comes to your brain they, they simply can't cut enough of a margin around the tumor without severely affecting the the patient's quality of life or indeed actually killing them so these tumors although they are solid tumors they infiltrate into the surrounding brain parenchyma um, and so the, the surgery that's done inevitably will leave cells behind um, and then it would appear that they are, are simply just incredibly hard to treat so again you know the, the patients receive radiation and, and chemotherapy but on average six to nine months later the tumor has has grown back um, so it is a very short life expectancy um, because they, they simply can't treat it properly okay um, during your work, you are now also part of the GLASS Consortium. Um, what is this consortium and what's the goal of that? So the GLASS Consortium is the Glioma Longitudinal Analysis Consortium. And it's really been developed for, for the reason that I just said, because glioblastoma and, and several other types of brain cancer are so incredibly hard to treat. Um, so there have been really kind of mass global efforts in which researchers have come together to molecularly profile Uh, cancers of, of lots of different types and, and the biggest one of these I suppose was the cancer genome atlas. Um, what they found in GBM though is even though we can determine what genetically um, and transcriptionally epigenetically makes these tumor cells different from the surrounding brain cells we've not yet successfully been able to use that information to stop them growing or indeed to to um, make them more uh, sensitive to treatment. 
So the next step in then trying to understand um, how we can more effectively treat this disease is to look at longitudinal samples. So, um, for example, a, a primary tumour will grow. The surgeon then removes that. So we have a sample. The tumour, as I say, for GBM inevitably grows back. And in some cases, the, tu- the surgeons will go back in and, and resect again the recurrent tumour. So the goal of the GLASS consortium really is to get as many of those paired samples from um, across the globe so that we can molecularly profile but compare what's in the recurrent tumour versus what's in the primary tumour in the hopes of understanding then, you know, if what made the the tumour grow in the first place isn't something that we can use to treat it. Maybe anything which caused it to resist treatment in the first place can therefore additionally be targeted. Um, And the reason that really I'm part of this is because that's the whole focus of my group. We take primary and recurrent GBMs. So for us, we do just focus on adult glioblastoma, though the GLASS consortium is any type of glioma um, and any type of longitudinal sample. We take these kind of primary and post-treatment recurrent tumours and do this kind of molecular profiling. So, um, of course, you know, we wanted to join forces and, and be part of this collaboration to try and increase the size of the data sets and also the, the samples that we'd managed to collect in the hopes that other people will be able to benefit from from those samples and those data as well. So this is, uh, yeah, also what you just said, uh, one of the main goals of your group, um, like to investigate the intratumular tumoral heterogeneity. Um, is that what you just meant by that or why is that also important? Yeah, so intratumor heterogeneity is um, basically just describes the fact that a, a tumor is not just made up of one type of cancer cell. Um, so what we find within a tumor is there are actually subpopulations of cancer cells with um, different genotypes and or phenotypes. Um, and the reason that kind of that's deemed to be very important for disease progression is that um, unless you can kill all of those different types of subpopulation, um, the the tumour can recur. So um, if you think of it like Darwinian selection in the case where um, a a mutation, a genetic mutation might be conferring treatment resistance, even if only three of the cells have that genetic mutation, so they themselves form a separate subclone within the larger tumour, they will be the ones that survive the treatment and therefore what you get is this this kind of clonal expansion. So intratumor heterogeneity is something that's seen in in many different types of cancer, but um, is, is very prevalent certainly within glioblastoma and um, from our point of view we're interested in how that does facilitate treatment resistance and and tumor regrowth. So are you saying that the first wave of tumor growth might be due to a different clone than the second wave? Yes absolutely yeah. Okay so on your website you show that your work is divided kind of up into three parts so maybe let's go through them a little bit just to, to get a, a feeling for your work. So first, there is a computational genomics. Um, so what can I imagine from, from that term, what falls under this category? Yeah, so I suppose in a way we've kind of uh, coined this term a little bit just to distinguish that type of work from functional genomics. So it's it's really all the stuff that I've just been speaking about and, and where my training came from. Um, computational genomics is taking patient samples and then developing large data sets from them, whether they be genomics data sets, transcriptomic, whether they be from sequencing or from arrays. Um, The the idea then is to try and make uh, biological and clinical inferences about that tumour, but using computational approaches because you have these big 
data sets and you need to kind of apply bioinformatics computational approaches to then really start to develop hypotheses about what could be going on in that tumour or in our case uh, comparing the primary and the recurrent tumour to try and say does that tell us anything about the tumour's journey through treatment um, that could be useful for us in trying to develop more effective treatments. So this is basically what is an expanding field at the moment because one part of the world is maybe generating the data and then the data is transferred to another lab and then they do like analytics on that and then have different approaches to analyze the data. Absolutely. Um, and I think doing my postdoc in a, a what was actually a purely cancer genomics group, the thing that I started to really feel is that it, it can create a slight bottleneck to have um, only one speciality within a group. So we wanted to say, yeah, you know, my background and training is this more computational genomics, but really if we focus everything around glioblastoma and this, this issue of treatment recurrence, Uh, sorry, treatment resistance and recurrence, we, we may be able to actually have different facets to what we do that link the, the computational genomics right through to um, hypothesis generation and then hypothesis testing. So I'm always interested in how much of computers or what kind of yeah, facilities you, you have in doing all those computer work. So uh, how much computers do you have standing around? <laughs> yeah, so um, actually, it's it's much less than you might imagine. So um, any of the students that come into my group, which are who, who are computational uh, biologists or, or bioinformaticians, they they get a fairly decent. You know, uh, normally we go for kind of something like a Mac, but just any good high spec computer. Um, because within the university, what we have is a um, high powered computing clusters. Basically, these these kind of like mega machines. So we on our individual computers can tunnel into these very large servers which gives us a, a massive amount of compute power and I mean effectively we can do that from wherever we are so it's the blessing and the curse of a bioinformatician that I take my lab with me wherever I go so um, I never have to stop working <laughs> both a pro and a con um, Yeah, so so effectively, you know, I'm currently speaking to you from home where I've been working this morning and what I have is my, my laptop um, that I'm just working away on, but I'm tunneling into these kind of high-powered computing clusters at the University of Leeds and taking full advantage of um, of all of the kind of infrastructure that we have here at the university. Yeah, so it's, yeah, I mean, some calculations may take like 16 hours, 20 hours or even days, so it's, it's just a matter of starting a new analysis or... Yeah, so what we do is we write our code in such a way that you basically submit jobs to this large computing uh, behemoth and um, you can have hundreds of, of tasks all running simultaneously. So we can write our code in such a way that, um, so for example, um, when you're doing aligning of DNA to the genome, um, it's possible to submit that potentially if, you, if your sequencing depth is so high, you could actually split your file up and submit a lower number of um, sequenced reads uh, simultaneously in parallel to speed things up oh yeah that's that's nice <laughs> so yeah. then the, the second part of your work and this is really interesting to me is um, there is uh, in silico modeling yeah. um, I, I really cannot imagine what that means and uh, yeah can could you please bring more light into the dark here yes absolutely so um I suppose in a way, this is the aspect of our work which feeds into the, the computational genomics aspect. So um, 
as bioinformaticians, we will have these very large data sets and we will um, want to use an approach, let's say, to take a, a large amount of mutational data and try and work out what were the subclones within that tumour, what's the genomic architecture. Um, the problem is that there might be 10 different programmes which all you know, claim to be able to do this and they give us slightly different results when we apply them to our data. So what we're always interested in as a group that has quite a focus on, on computational biology is how can we use our expertise to determine which of these approaches is giving us the most accurate uh, result. So by in silico modelling, what we mean is that we sometimes or, or we have attempted to kind of almost grow tumours in the computer using um, you know, processes that we know as cancer biologists occur um, and, and developing our own tumour of a known genomic architecture. So we basically take like a phylogenetic tree and we say, right, so here are however many interrelated clones that we're going to develop for this tumour um, and then we're going to artificially sequence them because we know what kind of errors get introduced during sequencing and all those kinds of things. So as much as possible we model in silico the development of a very heterogeneous tumour and we can then take these 10 different approaches and apply them because now what we're saying is not what do the programs tell us, but given that we know what that tumour really looks like because we grew it in our computers, you know, in silico, which of these 10 is actually giving us the most accurate answer, getting us back to our ground truth. So that is kind of, I suppose I put it under the term of in silico modelling because whilst we have focused on the exact question that I've just been explaining and the development of, um, I suppose, uh, tumor genomes in the computer we kind of hope to be able to expand this in in future so that we can start to test other types of programs as well maybe lending themselves more to transcriptional output for example so how much is is then new from you and how much did you build on so i have never heard of of this in silico modeling before uh, i must admit but how much of that is, is uh, that you do and how much uh, did you build on already oh well i, I mean i would say it's something Coming up through kind of bioinformatics training, it was something that I very quickly understood um, was part of our role, really. You know, if if if, a, um, if there is a biological question at hand, there will always be numerous different methods um, to, to, to apply. And it is kind of, I suppose, our part of our job, our remit, is to do due diligence and say which of these methods is performing best. I, I suppose I just felt that growing my own, uh, developing my own group, I was able to maybe create an arm of that, that, that where we do it a little bit more robustly. Um, and because I do have the, the kind of computational background, I could have people that are really thinking more about that problem and, and developing methods to help us to better answer those questions. So I, I certainly wouldn't say it's something that I have devised, um, but, but maybe something that it's a little bit uncommon to have someone have as an arm of their research. But As I say, it very much then feeds into the computational, you know, we use that to say, right, now we can justify why we want to choose these approaches. Then we apply them to our patient data in the hopes that we're going to therefore be getting, the, the, you know, exploiting those, those samples and those data in the most accurate and robust way possible. Oh, okay. And then there is also, like, The tree of your work, which is called functional genomics, and I guess this is now the wet lab work. Yes, yes. <laughs> so you also hired someone to do this for you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely correct. Yes. Um, so, what, so, what kind of things do you do there then? 
yeah so with the functional genomics i mean i suppose in a way what you can say is we have this um this arm which is hypothesis generation which is the kind of computational genomics or you know most people would just see that as classical genomics um but then, as I was saying earlier, I kind of want to be able to, within the group, take those hypotheses into some kind of testing. And of course, then we really have to revert you know, back to experimental biology. Um, as much as I'm someone who wasn't very adept at being in the lab, um, I absolutely do believe that it's fundamental that we have this kind of iteration between computation and experimental biology. You know, I think um, one without the other just can't be quite as impactful. So um, what we do is we have um, brain tumour tissue collection at Leeds. Um, we, we've actually just got some funding to develop a, a, a brain tumour tissue bank. So we're hoping to expand in this area. Um, and we can then grow either patient-derived cell lines or in some cases, you know, straight from primary tissue um, into culture. And we tend to use spheroid models at present. Um, and the idea then is that you can kind of grow plates of, of GBM spheroids or, or mini tumours, I suppose. And then we can... Um, try and apply different treatments. So if in our computational genomics approaches we have um, identified a molecular feature, let's just say it's a it's a mutation, which we think in some cases is conferring treatment resistance, um, then we can either in vitro recapitulate that mutation using approaches like CRISPR and say, right, do the cells that have that mutation have more treatment resistance? Or indeed, we can take the the, um, the patient samples and, as I say, grow these kind of mini tumours um, and then apply treatments to them and see, again, is it the cells that have those mutations which are um, resisting treatment more? Um, I, I suppose in, in the context of what we do, what's quite difficult is that primary and recurrent samples from patients are actually quite rare. They're quite hard to get hold of because in many situations, the surgeon isn't going to subject a patient to a second brain tumour surgery unless they really believe that it's going to extend that person's quantity or quality of life in some way. Whereas um, there are many more primary brain tumour surgeries. So by having this kind of functional arm, we can almost boost our, um, our, our data supply by saying, well, can we recapitulate what we see in patients if we grow the primary samples in vitro and apply the treatment in vitro and then look again at the cells which manage to survive? So this seems to be a really holistic approach that you're taking, like having the in vivo, in vitro, and in silico thing, like in, in one lab. So this this uh, seems to make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think um, the uh, the argument against it, I suppose, is that kind of jack of all trades. Um, but I'm I'm really trying hard, and we have some absolutely fantastic collaborators. You know, to say this group is focused on trying to understand treatment resistance in GBM and whilst I might be you know the, the inverted commas group leader I absolutely appreciate that my forte is in the computational aspect but we kind of just want to still be involved and, and have that follow through into to hypothesis testing so yeah you're absolutely right it is a holistic approach but I have to say we have many many collaborators that really facilitate um, being able to, to take that that multidisciplinary and multifaceted approach. Yeah. So one of my bosses during my PhD, he always uh, took time around Christmas to do his famous Christmas experiment. So just like one or two days when like everybody was leaving for Christmas holidays, um, where he went to the lab and did some experiments on the bench. Is there something that you do <laughs> on the bench or is it really that you're happy that you don't need to do that? Um, well, I mean, I, I actually still, I mean... 
I'm really quite early in my career. So at present, I still very much see myself as a postdoc slash PI. Um, so I, I still do a, a lot of research. I try and do at least, you know, one to two days a week. It's becoming uh, a bit less now as my group's expanding. Um, but yeah, very much so I, I still do it. But of course, it's not at the bench. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think if I... Yeah, I was aiming for the bench part. Yeah, yeah. I think I think um I think if I was to go into the lab people would run screaming because <laughs> because I'm a bit I'm a bit renowned for for yeah being as I say all all fingers and thumbs with, with that aspect of it. But I do sometimes think maybe I should go back and and retrain really because maybe I would be a little bit better now um that I've got my kind of own specific research questions. Yeah, maybe uh, introducing the Christmas experiment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Maybe that's exactly what I should do. I think I just need to. I need to relearn how to use a pipette before <laughs> before doing that. But yeah. So coming more to the work that you already published in 2015, you and your group published a paper on drivers of oral epithelial dysplasia, uh, complicated word uh, formation using RNA seq. And in my mind, it was always the case that people used just like genome sequencing for cancer analysis. Why? Did you use RNA-seq in this approach here in the study? Well, I mean, yeah, this was quite interesting. This was actually work that was done during my first postdoc. So when I was working in somebody else's group, um, Professor Pamela Roberts's group, and she really was cancer genomics. So, that, so she did focus on DNA um, and it was looking for... Uh, as you say, driver. So dysplasia is basically a precancer. So it's um, lesions somewhere within the oral cavity um, that, that clearly are starting to uh, transform. But in, I think it's about 90% of cases, they then just disappear of their own accord. But in 10%, they turn into an oral squamous cell carcinoma, um, which has a, a, a quite a low survival rate also. So the, the idea was in her group was to try and say what genetically is going on in those dysplasia which progress versus those which don't. Um, and she had a program grant. So I was there as a postdoc and, and, and helping with the, the aspects of things but I've always had a, a real interest in in uh, transcriptomes and RNA output and of course you know the RNA is the the functional output of the genome so there's benefits to looking at the RNA alongside the DNA because the, the approach is being taken within that group although there was whole genome sequencing for financial reasons and also pragmatic reasons they they were really focusing on whole exome sequencing Whereas, of course, when you look at uh, transcriptome output, you actually get um, RNA from wherever it happens to have been transcribed. Um, and also, of course, in the DNA, not everything is transcribed um, from a cell. So you might be looking at a specific set of mutations, which actually are completely irrelevant because they simply never get uh, transcribed within that particular cell type. So I was kind of able to, to say to her, well, look, these are the benefits. You know, this is how it's going to add information. Um, and I was also very lucky that there's a... a, a a very talented experimentalist in her group, Caroline Conway, who had had the foresight when she was looking at extracting DNA from these samples to simultaneously extract RNA. So basically, I um, wrote kind of a, a mini grant, um, a sub grant, as it were, to go back to the funders to say, can we use some of this program funding to actually, you know, divert a little bit into into transcription analysis? Um, and and that was that was where this this study came from. 
Um, what we found was that there are certain genes which do have um, consistently different expression as you go from normal tissue into dysplasia tissue and then again uh, the further progression into tumour tissue and some of that was indicative of, of kind of cell plasticity but also because these were um, it was bulk RNA-seq so it was the whole tumour basically that the pathologist had said these are the highest um, uh, most pure regions of the tumour and Caroline had then dissected those parts but nonetheless you were also getting transcriptional signals from additional cells that were in there and in fact actually that enabled us to understand about how the immune cells in the tumour environment changed going from uh, you know normal where there were very few to dysplasia where actually there was an influx of cytotoxic immune cells through to uh, the full-blown tumour in which case those cytotoxic cells appeared to had reduced a lot and you were having a lot more kind of macrophages and neutrophils which themselves can be um, uh, tumor suppressive um, but can also be immunosuppressive so it kind of allowed us to look from a different angle of maybe the microenvironment shaping some of the progression away from it just being about the the dna within the cancer cells themselves so this was like a mechanism of the body getting rid of pre-tumoral tissue Yeah, so I mean, it's with the data we have, we we uh, or that we had at the time, we could only really speculate. We weren't able, unfortunately, to take it forward to, to functional testing at that time. But I know that that work has been built upon since. Um, that yeah, it it looked as if there may be um, evidence there of immunoediting. So effectively, the body recognizes the dysplasia and is able to, you know, the immune system is able to remove it. But in those cases where actually there is some kind of adaptation within the tumor microenvironment and therefore they evade that immune attack, that is then when there is the opportunity for continued progression into uh, malignant uh, cancer. So this were your first steps into the epigenetics world then because, yeah, RNA and gene Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at that point, we just had pure RNA data, but certainly it kind of, it, it's always been a case for me. As you said earlier, I'm trying to take a holistic um, approach within the group. It's also even right down to like looking just at the genomics, this holistic approach of, well, okay, so this is the mutation at the DNA, but of course, if that's going to have an effect on the cell behavior, there has to be an additional layer in which it becomes expressed. Um, so at that point, yeah, it was kind of the, the DNA and, and the RNA. Um, But yeah, of course, as you say, that has to be um, coordinated through an epigenetic level. So. Yeah. Then also, if you go more recently, uh, earlier this year, you published a paper on heterogenesis, which plays into your in silico approaches and yeah. which simulates heterogeneous tumor genomes. Um, how does that work? And was this kind of a machine learning approach? Uh, so no, it wasn't actually a machine learning approach. Um, it, it is purely uh, a case of designing I suppose a phylogenetic tree for a tumor so saying you know we know that tumors develop because of initial founder mutations but from that point every cell division because the cell is dividing aberrantly can introduce new daughter mutations and at some point that then can trigger a a subclone which maybe has a completely different phenotype and therefore starts to divide at a different rate and that can cause different types of clonal expansion I mean, exactly like you know clonal evolution occurs elsewhere it happens within a tumor um, but at a much faster rate so we developed phylogenetic trees to say yeah we want you know these kind of daughter clones to come out of this ancestor clone 
And then um, I have a very talented PhD student, uh, uh, Georgette Tanner, who's in her third year. And she took that concept and basically worked out how to then um, evolve that tumour in silico. Um, So, you know, saying what would the percentage of those cells be? How would they differ? Um, So this kind of natural evolutionary process. And then she's layered on top this kind of um, in silico sequencing. Um, So you then take all of these clones and put them together as they would be in a tumour and then sequence that to a certain depth. And that therefore gives you a kind of simulated output from a tumour, but one in which we have designed. So therefore we know every mutation that should be in every clone, every allelic fraction, um, and we can then apply these kind of uh, uh, approaches which are meant to be able to work backwards from the whole data set and tell you what that phylogenetic tree was. We can then test how, how well they're actually working. So what I've always been thinking of now, and this picture pops into my head now, uh, every time you mentioned that you're doing this clonal expansion and this modeling and, and you want to know what kind of genome you have in every cancer cell that is present after several divisions is like C. elegans here, right? You you know what cell, which cell came from what came from what kind of cell, and and you know what every cell does and when which cell died, and so this is really what you're going for. Yeah, absolutely, and of course, cancer is an incredibly complicated process, and we certainly don't know all of the underlying mechanisms. So, you know, all we can really do is model as best as we possibly can. But certainly, what we try to keep in mind as our end goal is, you know, what do we actually get from a tumor, and what we get is sequencing data, and therefore, you know, uh, can we model at least the areas that we know that get um, introduced in that process, as well as, of course, the biology that we understand to, to see how well these programs can uh, delineate the two or, or, you know, distinguish between sequencing artifacts and, and, and true mutations, which may be at very, very low levels, of course. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's this process of trying to uh, recapitulate what we know about the biology in the computer so that we can have our ground truth and, and, and know um, the answer that we're looking for um, because we modeled it ourselves. Yeah. So, and then most recently, um, you submitted a paper on BioArchive. I think it's not yet published other no, than yeah. BioArchive, um, which is titled JARIT2 facilitates transcriptional reprogramming in glioblastoma in response to standard treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, which already moves into the direction of epigenetics. Uh, what did you find out about Chari 2 and what is Chari 2? <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is this is, I suppose, what I would call my baby at the minute. You know, this is really the direction that, that uh, a lot of the work is taking, and it's been a, a really quite exciting finding for us. So. Um, Going back to what I was just saying about the paper published in 2015, you know, this was the idea of taking progressive samples and looking at differences in, in the RNA. Um, that is pr- precisely what we've done with this particular project, but between um, longitudinal GBM samples. So we had our primary and recurrent samples, and we first of all looked at the DNA. And what we found is that there was no clear evidence of expansion of cells based on their genotype. So at that point, we decided, right, well, we have, you know, the RNA that we've extracted and we want to look at differential gene expression or or transcriptional processes that appear to be going on between matched primary and recurrent GBMs in the hopes of finding any molecular features that could indicate that that's what was causing them to become treatment resistant. 
So um, in doing this, we got these kind of lists of differentially expressed genes. And actually what we found, and again, this was kind of, I suppose, the low hanging fruit. It was the, the bog standard analysis to say, right, what's differentially expressed and what pathways does that fall in? And what we found is that the pathways that appear to be dysregulated through treatment are all involved in kind of neurogenesis, gliogenesis, normal brain development processes. So immediately we started learning more about, you know, normal brain development. And actually, it's um, a process which is orchestrated by transcription factors and, of course, chromatin remodeling complexes. So what we decided to do then was say, well, um, there are computational approaches such as gene set enrichment analysis where you can look at all the genes changing between a primary and a recurrent or, or between any two groups and say, is there any master regulator which is being um, indicated as the thing that could be controlling all of these different types of gene expression. So we did, um, you know, kind of a systems biology approach to identify whether anything which binds DNA, basically any DNA binding factor was implicated. And Jared too just absolutely popped out. I mean, it was by far the highest enriched factor. So genes with Jared 2 binding sites in their promoters are significantly and consistently changed across all the different patients going from a primary to a recurrent tumour. Um, so again, back to back to the literature, what is Jared 2 And it turns out that it's an accessory protein to the polycomb repressive complex 2. Um, PRC2 can't bind to DNA, but Jared 2 can. So effectively, Jared 2 I suppose, docks, binds, guides, whatever word you want to use, really, um, PRC2 to different locations within the genome. And PRC2 then is able to repress gene expression by depositing um, the, the histone mark H3K27ME3, so trimethylation of histone 3, lysine 27. Um, and th this was absolutely fascinating to us because the more that we delved into it, the more that we found that actually this kind of pairing of JARID2 and PRC2 um, is really quite fundamental during neurogenesis. So potentially what we're seeing going from primary to recurrent is um, some kind of epigenetic remodeling, which um, is, is present during brain cell lineage determination, uh, which kind of made us think, well, maybe this is a normal process which is being hijacked going from primary to recurrent because the cells are basically reprogramming in, in adaption to being treated. Um, and that's kind of the, the working hypothesis that we have now. And, and really the, the focus of a lot of our work is in, in testing whether or not that may well be the case. And this, this feeds also into my next question. So you won a 10,000 euro or pound services grant for, from Active Motif. And yeah, do you want to use this uh, grant to study like those implications or can you give us a little insight into what you're going to do next? Yep, yep, absolutely. That's very much so. So we've got kind of a few different avenues whereby we're trying to test some of the hypotheses that we have um, put forward in, in, in our latest preprint. Um, but this one particularly is based on the fact that Active Motif is able to do ChipSeq or, you know, one of the services that, that is provided is, is ChipSeq in formalin fixed material. And in our case, we have these primary and recurrent samples that we've collected from many different collaborating sites across the UK, um, but they are mainly in this format. 
because of course um, you, you you can never predict which patients are going to be eligible for a recurrent surgery and actually tissue banking isn't still you know completely standard in the UK so in many cases where you even know that you've got a recurrent surgery coming the, the primary sample will itself be as, as FFPE um, so because it's our first kind of foray into epigenetics um, many many people tell me oh it's just it's you know so difficult next to impossible to do any kind of chip seek in um, FFPE material we kind of were really interested to working with Active Motif to, to see if we could get, you know, exploit anything from this this larger collection that we have in, in as formal in fixed tissue. And so what we're doing is, is using this um, service grant to take one of our pairs where we have the primary and the recurrent in, in formal in blocks and to look first and foremost at this um, histone 3 lysine 27 trimethylation mark in the primary and the recurrent so that we can start to see where are the differences and do they correspond to what we believe to be these Jared 2 binding site genes. Um, in addition to that, because it is quite a generous grant, um, it, it's sufficient money that we can simultaneously look at another histone mark, which is histone 3 lysine 4 trimethylation. And our interest in that is because um, these two marks together, if they appear simultaneously, define what is known as a bivalent promoter. Um, and again, we've just moved into epigenetics. So this has all been a really big learning for me and a really exciting area that we're still finding out more about. But um, it, it really looks as if during neurodevelopment, these kind of bivalent promoters are, are some of the most important in terms of decision making. So determining whether a progenitor cell is going to go down a neuronal lineage or a glial cell lineage, it is because of expression at these bivalent promoters, which are effectively... Um, primed and ready to go so I always say to my student you have to think that the the, the lysine 27 trimethylation is the red light at, you know at, at traffic lights and lysine um, 4 trimethylation is the green light and by having them together you create this amber situation where it's kind of ready to go in in one direction or another so it can really rapidly cause it to adapt and, and we're just very interested to see again how these two marks compare and contrast between our primaries and recurrences to see if indeed it is that kind of quick fire decision that enables the cell to adapt and evade the treatments that we so desperately need to to kill them with so this will be very interesting to to read once uh, you get the data so yeah. <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very i'm very looking forward to that yeah but in the last like I guess it was now 35 minutes. We have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings and maybe something we might have missed along the way? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose for me, certainly now, I'm, I'm very much focused on this area of uh, glioblastoma or, or brain tumor biology. And I think our interesting finding has been that whilst we want to look at everything as much as we possibly can, you know, the DNA, the epigenetics, the, the, the RNA, um, we believe that what we're finding is actually um, cell plasticity um, potentially is is a, is a more important driving force for treatment resistance than, than actually the underlying genome. And I'm sure that when, you know, if and when we manage to get millions of pounds to look at everything in even more detail, we'll, we'll find that link back again and find that there are some genomic drivers which affect the epigenetic landscape. I think for us, certainly, we feel that this is a really exciting time where we're looking a lot more at adaption 
um, of these tumours than what, what we thought originally was kind of an inherently treatment resistant cell that was lurking um, in the midst. We think that maybe there is something a lot more plastic about the way that these, these tumours respond. And we hope that that will have implications across other types of cancer, which um, have still very much got un unmet clinical needs. Okay, then thank you very much, Lucy, for your time and being on this show. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me and, uh, and, and letting me waffle on. <laughs> <laughs> This was the 14th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. You can download the podcast also via iTunes. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, motivations at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. <laughs>